0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today I'm happy to be joined again by Dr. Tim Chan, director of the Center for Immunotherapy and Precision Immuno-Oncology at Cleveland Clinic. He was here last year to talk to us about his vision for the Center for Immunotherapy and Precision Immuno-Oncology, and that episode is still available. He's here today to talk to us about genomics and the treatment of cancer. So, welcome back, Tim. Thanks so much, Dale. It's such a pleasure to be here again with you. So, maybe you can remind us about your role here at Cleveland
1: Clinic. Sure, so I'm a relative recent transplant. Uh, I've been here for almost coming on a year and a half, two years now. so I'm the chair of the Center for Immunotherapy and Precision Immuno Oncology, which is the first of these large bridge centers or departments that the Cleveland Clinic has established. And my role here is to build, the basic sciences for immuno-oncology, and also to set up capabilities for cell therapy uh, and and on-site cell therapy and CAR-T development, uh, as well as shared resources that facilitate early phase trials uh, at the Cleveland Clinic to broaden access to life-saving therapies for our patients.
0: Excellent. Well, today we're going to be talking about genomics specifically. And so we've had some recent changes in our ability to get genomic information or genomic testing. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of where we were and kind of what the new advances have been.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, and, and thank you for that question, because it is so important. So, you know, typically, I would say in the last 50 years, you know, cancer treatment and diagnosis has been a endeavor uh, that has followed certain workflows, right? You have chemotherapy, you have radiation, you have surgery, and uh, there were the development of these pathways for treatment of different types of diseases so that colon cancer may be different than lung cancer, may be different from like a brain tumor. So, um, over the last, I would say, 20 years or so, it's become very apparent that there are certain unifying biological alterations that go right in cancer and these can be targeted so you hear about some of the very first targeted agents like imatinib for uh, cml leukemias or egfr inhibitors for lung cancers these have been game changing right and so I think that over uh, the last several years, especially this has heated up, um, there are now these FDA indications for very broad approvals uh, based on molecular characteristics. And when selecting your patients very carefully, the drugs have the potential to have life-saving benefits. And so this is where the field has been and will continue to go. And you see in the news and in national meetings... Um, Ash, for instance, was just occurring recently. You see the development of these new therapies, both targeted and immunotherapies, that are having just amazing, life-changing consequences for our patients now. And all that is predicated on getting the diagnosis correct. Okay, the genetics and and also the epigenetics, where or the the molecular features is an integral part of the diagnosis. It's not just solely from what the tumors look like and where they come from, and it's an integral part in of folks like yourself and myself developing uh, the best uh, treatment plans for our patients.
0: When we think about testing, we've we've recently changed how we're doing testing, the data we get from that testing. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So, um, I think about 10, 15 years ago, uh, small panels of about 300 to 500 genes have been used, and these cover some known cancer alterations, but but they weren't comprehensive. And recently at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, through a collaboration between our uh, center and uh, the Taussig uh, Cancer Institute, as well as pathology with uh, Dr. Rubin, Brian Rubin, the chair of pathology, we've been able to set up a workflow where we sequence the entire exome or the, or the, the whole part of the functional genome, as well as the RNA or the um, what's being used by the genome for all of our patients that need it. And, you know, of, of course, the key uh, companion diagnostics, meaning the key markers are still there, but we have the opportunity to expand the data that we collect now across the entire genome of uh, the tumors of the patients, allowing us to really fine tune which tumors are sensitive to which drugs.
0: So when we think about the sequencing, I'm just going to double back. You talked about the epigenetic characteristics. And when we look at genomic things, we typically think about like an intrach fusion or things like that. Which do you think is going to ultimately be more important? Or can you, can you sort of put on your, your uh, prognostic hat? And do you think it's going to be more about the genes that are expressed or the epigenetics? Or what do you think is going to play a bigger
1: role? Oh, I think that's a great question, Dale. I think that this is one of the uh, purposes of expanding our genomic testing because what is important is very broad, right? So, in some cases, like lung cancer, you find, of course, um, you know, uh, translocations are, are very important and they're life-changing. In other types of tumors, for instance, you know, for immunotherapy uh, uh Compliant tumors, uh, you know, biomarkers such as mismatch repair or tumor mutation burden uh, have become the first pan cancer biomarkers that have been approved, meaning that if you just have that alteration, you can start prescribing that medicine because. Response rates are higher. So, in other words, um, it's broad based. It involves genes, it involves epigenetics as well, uh, um, such as with glioma and MGMT, right? If you have methylation there, you're much more sensitive to chemo and radiation. And so, that's a rationale for broadening our testing capability to be able to cover all the bases in as few tests as possible so that we don't leave anything out. So, we're very excited to be able to do that. I think, in the near future, we're going to continue to gain a lot of information. All the major trials now uh, that are being done with new new treatments are all rolling in genomics, right? And we have every week, we have a flood of new uh, information on how best to tailor our treatments. And so the answer to, to, I guess, that question is that all of it is important. And we're trying to um, set up the basis here to be able to address uh, all those challenges.
0: So certainly from a sort of clinical perspective, as a clinician, not on the research side, but just from a clinical perspective, talking to patients, the Two big barriers in the past would be insurance coverage for testing and how often a patient would have something that's actionable. So thinking about the first one, what, what's changed in the world in terms of our ability to get coverage for patients to get this testing? Well, that's another great question, and
1: it's so important because I would say about uh, 10 years ago, The field was not where it was, and insurance coverage was not where it was. Actionability was only about 15%, right? But as um, of all the patients that you um, sequence, about 15% will have an alteration that will um, change the way that you practice, what drugs that you're, or what treatments that you're prescribing. Nowadays, um, it continues to go up. And recently, there have been the development, as I mentioned before, these pan cancer approvals, meaning um, these tumor agnostic approvals. If you have, for instance, NTRAC fusion, or if you have MSI or high TMB, you're much more likely to respond to certain treatments. For MSI and TMB, it's immunotherapy. And for uh, NTRAC, it's basically kinase inhibitors. Those are life changing, right? And they span different tumor types. And so, having these two agnostic approvals really has resulted in much, much broader insurance coverage for patients. And it's a rationale now for approval, these have been approved by uh, CMS and the FDA, and they are parts of standard of care now, with level one evidence. So, I think that a lot has changed in the last ten years. Um, no longer are we in a situation where insurances are you know not covering these; they really should be and are covering these to a greater extent. Now, obviously, medicine and finances change very you know relatively slowly. We're not at perfect yet, um, but uh, the rationale is strongly there. Uh, to incorporate this universally uh, in the finances of medicine, and
0: I guess for those listening in that may not be doing this on a regular basis, tell, tell us a little bit about um, you know historically we would take tissue and and look at genomics. Tell us about liquid biopsies and how that has fit into our ability to get genomic information.
1: Right, right. So this this goes to uh, discuss about how. These tests are done. Typically, we would have a biopsy or part of a tissue that comes from surgery. A tumor would be removed. It would go to our pathologist, and they would send this out, where the tumors are then processed and sequenced, and then we would get the data back. Right. So, um, obviously, you you know, if you think about this, this is not that easy to do. You can imagine that you know on treatment, things will change and you might not be able to get uh, biopsies all the time when a patient is actively on therapy. And so we have a new modality now, um, or actually it's a family of modalities with a lot of different uh, options to do what's called liquid biopsy. And liquid biopsy basically measures and sequences the amount of tumor DNA that's released into the bloodstream. So many tumors... Because they're tumors, but relatively, you know, friable, and they can release the DNA, these markers into the bloodstream, and sequencing can actually pick up on those mutations. And it's a bloodless way of doing uh, genomic sequencing. It's making a lot of progress now. It's surely easier on patients, of course, and it is approved in a number of instances. And there's a lot of increase. A utility of this as well. And it's an ongoing area of, of a, a tremendous amount of research now. We're very excited. Actually, on a research setting, um, my department has actually launched liquid biopsy uh, circulating tumor DNA sequencing at the Cleveland Clinic to be available on a research basis here. And we are actually putting together the clinical side of things as well so that this is much more available to all our patients.
0: And I guess as that becomes more available, I guess the a question that frequently comes up is whether the genomic testing should take place with the primary tumor or with a metastatic site. What, what's your perspective on that?
1: No, I think that's a that's a really good question. And that goes into the differences between tissue-based sequencing and blood, right? So when you do a tissue-based sequencing assay, you're, you're actually looking at only one site. And if you actually look at uh circulating tumor dna it's the amalgamation of the release of dna from all the different sites so theoretically uh and in many cases this has borne out to be true by studies you are integrating the alterations from a variety of different different sites So nothing is perfect i think this you know the, the work continues to go on but yes it is very frequent that one uh lesion may hold a certain alteration that you could prescribe a drug for, but the other lesion may not, right? And circulating tumor DNA is theoretically a better way to be able to allow you to tell a difference. Um, this all goes into what we call tumor heterogeneity, right? And uh, when, a, when a tumor becomes metastatic, they can become different from each other. One site may become different, and circulating tumor DNA is a better way to help us uh, figure that out.
0: How was your group working with medicinal chemists, the sort of bench scientists, uh, to work on the fact that we we're really, really good at looking at lots and lots of genes now and coming up with lots of alterations, but not necessarily how to, to target them as with, for therapies. Um, how are we sort of incorporating that aspect to come up with new, you know, new agents to, to target these abnormalities?
1: Right. So, you know, classically, you know, for treatment, you can make a a chemical, a a small drug, or you can make an antibody. And nowadays we have cell therapies where we can reprogram our own T cells or other immune cells to be able to attack uh, cancer cells by recognizing something. So we're doing a little bit uh, of all of the above. Our own shop here, we have an effort now built up at the Cleveland Clinic um, to identify... Uh, new targets that are called neoantigens that are mutated. Some of these can be made into vaccines and they can be developed into new targets for uh, what's called CAR T cells or engineered T cells that are designed to attack certain targets on tumor cells. And so we're doing a little bit of that on each side. We are also uh, developing antibody drug conjugates against mutated proteins on the surface of. Different cancers. Uh, we, for instance, we have a very exciting program now in pediatric sarcomas. Now, uh, Ewing sarcoma that we just started up, where there are these recurrent alterations. Very excited about that. But more broadly, you know, besides therapeutics, we're also working on how best to match therapeutics with uh, the best patients. Like I mentioned before, of which. Genomic testing is a huge example, and you know, we're, we're uh, connecting with, of course, Udale and others, and, and, and Nate Pannell, and Pauline Fonchain, and many others in the various uh, services to be able to make the optimal use of uh, tumor sequencing and to be able to put this data into a new family of trials, a uh, basket trials, as they're called based on molecular alterations right there's a lot of drugs on the market this is basically a effort to match up the best drugs with each individual patient that requires a lot of data of management that requires broad sequencing and that requires access to patients and so that's a um, infrastructure that we are deep into the process of building now
0: as we develop more knowledge about the abnormalities that might lead to cancers and we are able to treat them uh, we've made tremendous progress over the years. Do you think at some point we're going to look back and think it was really naive to treat by geography and to treat lung like lung and breast like breast instead of just treating the underlying abnormalities? Do you think we'll have a blurring of all of the, all of the sort of subgroups of people treating tumors and it'll entirely be treated by genomic abnormalities or, or immunosignatures or something?
1: Well, I think that it's not going to be one or the other. I think it's going to be all of the above, right because you know anatomic location you know part of it is that you know a colon cancer behaves anatomically different than a head and neck cancer as as we as we both know so um there's things like lymph node drainage, things that dictate where things spread, and those are going to be governed by the anatomy in the site right and so I think that classic anatomy-based treatment and site-based treatment is not going away, right? You know, the last, you know, 150 years of, of medicine for this is gonna remain a mainstay of treatment. But I think what um, genomics allows us to do is really get in get a peek into the mechanistic alterations that drive those cancers. And they may be the same in many different types of tumors. However, they are not going to explain away all the differences, right? That, that, that site specific qualities of the tumor are going to require us to be able to adapt for treatment. So again, remember, people forget surgery is a, it cures many, many patients, okay? Early phase patients, that surgery, uh, it's never going to be the same between a head and neck tumor and a colon tumor, right? But what comes after surgery to prevent dissemination may be similar right? Such as PI3 kinase mutations, which happen in both. So I think what we're going to see is an amalgamation and, and an enrichment of all the knowledge that we all have across multiple fields for improved care. And it's going to be all of the above, Dale.
0: There have been tremendous advances in the last five years, 10 years, you know, as we look forward, what, what are the biggest gaps? What, what's keeping us from
1: making those, those next big moves? Well, I think that target identification and, and development, um, there are many tumors that have alterations that we simply do not have a way to to hit. Transcription factors, for instance, are one of them, or you know these these um, proteins that control um, gene expression P53, for instance, is the most commonly mutated gene all across all cancers, mutating over 50 percent of tumors. If we had a way to hit every P53 mutant tumor, our jobs would be half done, right? <laughs> uh, and, and But we don't, and because they're very, very difficult to target. The second is acquired resistance, right? So many of the therapies, especially the kinase inhibitors these days, you know, like uh, the um, er- erlotinibs and so forth, for lung cancer, the EGFR inhibitors, when you hit one Uh, target, they can become resistant because cancer cells like bacteria uh, can be very smart, right? And they can weasel around different drugs or like antibiotics with bacteria around how uh, it's something trying to control their growth and trying to kill them. And so acquired resistance is something that we have to deal with in oncology, uh, especially in the phase one program, right? And as patients become uh, resistant to one alteration or, or drug, then uh, we have to uh, target other things and and, and figuring out what is the basis of acquired resistance to any given therapy is going to be really critical for us to to continue to be able to offer more options uh, for patients. And thirdly, access, right? So, you know, care is so different across different economic strata, different parts of the country. You get an amazing amount of diversity of outcomes just based on what, uh, where that patient is getting treated, so access and diversity and serving underprivileged areas is really, really a major problem that's increasingly being tackled by the National Cancer Institute and and by by us here at Cleveland Clinic as well. And uh, you know, it's an ongoing battle, but I think it's it's, it's just as important as the first two science based challenges that that I mentioned.
0: Well, Tim, you're doing uh, incredible work. We appreciate you. Uh providing such great insight. I look forward to working with you, making more progress. Fantastic.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me and good luck. To make a direct online referral to our Tossett Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.